the spinal cord that affects uh, its ability to perform its usual functions and to transmit information to the rest of the body. Um, really where I think our in-hospital management becomes important is in preventing the secondary injuries. So you've got periods of um, hypotension or hypoxia that contributes to secondary cell death. Um, and that's where uh, you know, I think we, we have the potential to make a real difference and preserve the function that patients uh, haven't lost yet and might lose in the, in the coming day or two days. Welcome to the EDGL. Intro, bro. <laughs> nice. I know it sounds like I was on that note. Rage. You know, like back in the day, I'm showing my age, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, you're just branching out. Yeah. <laughs> um, welcome to the podcast. Um, bang, hit it. Um, my name's Benny, and I'm chatting to Simon. Um, hey, guys. Uh, yeah, you. Stoked. Um, this place is epic. I'm in Simon's house, um, and we are in an awesome location close to the beach. Mate, um, welcome to the podcast. Today we're chatting about spinal cord injury. Mm. Um, and what do you do for work, mate? Um, uh, neurosurgery, Reg. Uh, working in Wollongong at the moment. I've moved around a fair bit the last couple of years, but um, in my second last year of training. So a big exam next year and then out in the world. Nice. Mm. It's a big job. It is. It is. Yep. It's been a long, long time coming, but almost there. Awesome. I'm looking around the room. I'm seeing some spinal... I'm seeing a spinal cord in the corner. I'm seeing a skull in front of me on this desk. Yeah, uh, look, I'm uh, either a neurosurgeon or a serial killer. <laughs> I was about to say, <laughs> should I be worried? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows you're here? Oh, well, you know, yeah. exactly right. I'm worried. I don't think I told anyone. <laughs> um, now, mate, um, your study's a long journey. Um, I mentioned, I was chatting to an ENT, Reg, and she said, um, you know, accredited programs, unaccredited programs, medicine is a long apprenticeship. Your apprenticeship is a little longer yeah. Um, how long is it to become a consultant as a neurosurgeon? Uh, look, uh, I think for me it'll probably end up being 15 years, including med school. Wow. Um, and then you know, there'll be a year or two of fellowship at the end of that, so you know, looking at 17. Okay. Is there any part of the neurosurgery part that you love or is there any part of the spinal cord or brain or anything that you really actually geek out on? Uh, look, it's, it's changed with time. Yeah. Uh, when I was a med student, it was the brain that got me into it. Uh, and then the more I've done, the more I've enjoyed the spinal side as well. But look, I, I love both. It's, okay. um, but I, I certainly think the decision making in spinal pathology is uh, you know, pretty interesting. It's what what uh, gets me excited. So I think that's uh, that's what I want to focus on moving moving forward. Cool. Now I've got a, now I know a surgeon. So if I need any, have any, you know, <laughs> I've been, you know, if I need anyone, I know where to go. <laughs> All right. Um, and we're going to crack into spinal cord um, injury. Um, obviously, for your exams, fellowship, and stuff, you had, had done a bit of research recently, or, or probably over your years, yeah, yeah. Um, on the spinal cord. Um, and let's just run through what is the spinal cord, what does it do, um, why do we have it? Yeah, yeah. Look, um, so I think just conceptually, there's uh, two major components to what we do. There's the brain, and there's the spinal cord. So the spinal cord is all of the nerves that supply your arms and legs, the rest of your body. Um, so it's, it's, it's vital and uh, problems in the spinal cord cause a myriad of different problems and based on where the, the injury to the spinal cord is, you can generally track uh, what sort of symptoms you're likely to have. So, you know, it's, it's a good roadmap, I guess, um, to, to work back from if you see somebody in ED that's undifferentiated, um, that has you know, weakness in their legs, um, you know, you can... You can make an assumption based on uh, where, the, where the injury is likely occurred. Yeah, awesome. Um, yeah. 
we um, recently did have a kid through our ED who had a spinal cord stroke. Yeah, right. Uh, and that was super interesting for yeah. me. He'd come in with, yeah, uh, you know, uh, deficit in the lower legs, mm. uh, which continued to get worse. Yeah. Uh, it was really interesting uh, when that came in just for, for learning. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I would imagine during your job you'd hear about people on the range of age brackets. Yeah. Uh, and also some really weird and wonderful but also scary stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got a, an interesting case we can talk about at the end if we've got time. But, um, awesome. yeah, like you know, uh, spinal cord strokes are, are very, very uncommon, but they're a, a good demonstration of the anatomy. Yep. So, um, yeah. Mm. Right. Cool. Um, in the spinal cord, how many vertebrae do we have? Um, what, you know, yeah. Yeah, so you've got uh, seven vertebrae in your neck, mm-hmm. um, which is your survival ne- uh, vertebrae. You've got 12 in your thoracic spine, uh, five in your lumbar, and uh, five in your sacrum, and then uh, cox- the coccyx at the end. Um, there are segmental nerves at each level, and uh, there are certain nerves that supply your arms, so uh, C5 to T1, and certain uh, nerves that supply uh, your lower limbs as well, so you get your lumbosacral plexus. Um, yeah. Sweet. Dude, that was just... Fresh man, there you go. <laughs> I got to read off on my not once. I did hear about someone having an extra vertebrae. Can you have that? Yeah, you can, and that was like weird. yeah, you can have heart, half vertebrae, hemi okay, vertebrae cool. as well. You can have, um, I mean, generally, you've got discs between yeah. your cervical, thoracic, and lumbar vertebrae, um, and your sacrum's fused, but you can have what's called a lumbarized uh, sacral vertebra where you've got a disc between some of your sacral, sacral levels. And you can have a um, sacralized lumbar segment as well, okay. where you've got you know, one less. Interesting. Yeah. I'm oh, sorry. I was just, this person told me on their scan. I'm like, what the hell? And then yeah, looked, yeah. I was like, yeah, injury. Interesting. Yeah. Um, cool. Um, and the spinal cord itself, um, what does it do? What are its functions uh, in the body? So I, I guess uh, from a simplistic sense, there are ascending and descending tracks. So. Um, if you think about your brain being the main control unit, uh, there are fibres and tracks that run down to supply the muscles. Um, and there are, and you think if you cut your finger, it hurts. Yep. Um, and that's got to be appreciated somewhere. So the, the sensory signals from that cut on your finger travels back to your spinal cord and then up to your brain. So you've got fibres that run up and down. Um, so it's a, a continuous network supplying information to and from the rest of your body. Uh, and what what's inside the spinal cord from a physiological point of view what's inside it uh so you've got nerve fibers mm-hmm. um you've got uh two main types of um of tissue i guess so you've got white matter and gray matter um white matter is called white matter because it's got uh a an insulation uh, called myelin which is white um and gray matter is uninsulated um and there are different fibers that travel through each of those well Mm. Is it interesting looking at the spinal cord, like, you know, in textbooks and then hanging on the wall to actually when you see a spinal cord in somebody? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, most, most of what you see in textbooks is a, is a transverse cut. So okay. you see the, you know, the white and the grey matter and there are all these pretty little lines drawn with all the, um, all the ascending and the descending tracks. But when you see it uh, at surgery, it's, uh, you're looking at it longitudinally often because you've opened them up from the back. Um, and... It doesn't look like the textbook. Okay. Yeah. I like to know. Yeah, it's just interesting, yeah. you know, like I've, I've had the privilege to be able to see it, but it's different. You would see it a lot more than I would have seen it. Um, oh, but yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you get nervous when you're just, just off topic, like just when you're sitting there and you're, you've got a spinal cord in front of you and you obviously you're with other clinicians, but do you ever get nervous thinking it's a pretty important part of the body from what you've described, what it can do? Oh, uh, look, I think... I think the nice thing about our training in Australia is that it's it's very graded. So you know, before you uh, before you end up doing an operation by yourself, you will have seen and assisted in in parts of those operations hundreds of times. Um, and 
know, with anything anything that's high risk like that, if we're doing an operation on the spinal cord, then you, you'll always have the boss on standby as well so that if things do go pear-shaped, you've got somebody to bail you out. But, um, yeah, for the most part, you're under control. Awesome. Um, and then we're going to get into spinal cord injury. Um, I, I've read a little bit on spinal cord injury, but nowhere near what you've read. I know there's different um, grading systems. I know there's different yep. things that are used um, for grading spinal cord. Yeah, but... Um, Spinal cord injury. If you were describing to someone, what would you de- would be describing? Yeah, if you to a p- patient or even just to other staff or junior doctors or nurses, what is a spinal cord injury? Look, I think it's um uh, the the simplest description would be it, it's an injury to the spinal cord that affects uh, its ability to perform its usual functions and to transmit information to the rest of the body. Um, so, I mean, when when we look at brain and spinal cord injuries, we talk about primary and secondary injury. Yeah. Um, primary injury is irreversible. It's you know, whatever has happened uh, at the time of the car accident or when they've had the fall or whatever else. So it's you know, shearing, compression, stretch. Um, really where I think our in-hospital management becomes important is in preventing the secondary injuries. So where you've got periods of um, hypotension or hypoxia that contributes to secondary cell death. Um, and that's where, uh, you know, I think we, we have the potential to make a real difference and preserve the function that patients uh, haven't lost yet and might lose in the, in the coming day or two days. Um, but also potentially given the opportunity for some, uh, some improvement as well. When I was speaking to my son um, on the way, we were fishing this morning yeah. uh, and then we were heading back in the car and I said, I'm ta- chatting to a neurosurgical doctor about the spinal cord injury and he goes, don't you just put him in a wheelchair? This is my son, which was interesting. And I said, oh, Geordie, mate, like there's little things that we can do along the journey that can actually help the patient. And sometimes they may never get out of that wheelchair. Sometimes they won't be in wheelchairs. There's all different levels of that. But I was just, it was just interesting. I was saying sometimes we, the management or how we treat that can be different which you've described yeah. then so yeah i'll get him to listen <laughs> <laughs> um anyway yeah cool okay um and depending on where the spinal cord is affected or injured i'm assuming that could determine the level of function a patient will have post yeah absolutely um there, there are different types of spinal cord injury as well yeah. um so there's a uh, the american spinal in- uh, spinal injury association um has a generic examination pro forma that every uh, neurosurgical registrar will have done at some point in their training. Um, and certainly I think it's very important for ED staff to be familiar with it as well. It's called the INSCI uh, examination um, pro forma. But basically using that, you assess uh, a patient's motor function in five uh, uh, muscle groups in the arms, five in the legs on each side, and pin prick and fine touch sensation from C2 down to the sacral segments. And depending on the pattern of loss in that examination, you can determine whether or not they've got a complete spinal cord injury, so no motor or sensory function below the level, or whether they've got an incomplete injury with some deficits or whether they're completely neurologically intact. Um, And that's that's helpful in identifying whether they've got impairments in their arms, whether they've got impairments in the legs, or um, whether actually, you know, there's um there's nothing wrong at all okay is that like the a to e yeah exactly yeah cool yeah yep. so and, and a correlates with a complete injury b c and d are all incomplete yep. um and an e is normal you want an e yeah if absolutely. You, well, we do yeah. but yeah, yeah. yeah um okay. I, I guess the uh a, a very common pathology that that we see particularly in older patients is central cord syndrome okay um which tends to present a little differently to to what we'd expect with a cord injury so rather than when we traditionally think of an injury in the neck, you think that you lose all function below that. 
Um, central cord syndrome, they get injury to the central part of the spinal cord, which preferentially affects the arms rather than the legs. Yeah. So often the legs will be uh, preserved or, or less affected and they'll have weakness in the arms uh, with a preference for the hands. So that's one difference. Okay. Is that like a, like uh, like decks and like to reduce swelling in that spinal cord? Is uh, that not not so much. Okay. Um, it's more of a yeah. There's it's more a matter of relieving the compression. Okay. Um, and compression. yeah, exactly. Okay. So yeah. yeah. Um, we're going to get into a bit of oh, <laughs> during this journey. We're going to run through spinal cord injury. We're going to run through um, a bit of the risk factors for spinal cord injury, the prevalence of it, uh, a bit of the management and treatment of it, which is the stuff you love. Yeah. Um, so let's run through quickly. How often do you see spinal cord injury um, in your job as a neurosurgical reg? Oh, look, I think we get a, a pretty skewed perception, but um, even even still, it's not a particularly common problem. Okay. Um, and I worked at Prince of Wales last year, which is the spinal referral, one or two spinal referral centres in New South Wales. Um, and you know, we, we would probably have a patient, you know, every two to three weeks, okay. um, which is far, far beyond that in other units, certainly. Um, but you know, that's obviously a more concentrated mix. Um, I, I think what we're seeing is that spinal cord injuries used to be uh, a problem in young patients and with high high energy trauma, but we're seeing more and more with the ageing population that okay. it's it's becoming a problem of the of the elderly as well. Okay. Um, and some of the some of the risk factors that are contributing to that are um, old, older patients have a lot of degenerative change in their necks. And they might be walking around in the community with really tight cervical canal stenosis. Um, and you know, a fall and a hyperextension injury can be enough to give them a devastating injury. Okay. So I guess you've raised some of those risk factors, which would be canal stenosis, yep. elderly, uh, trauma. Mm. Would there be any others that you'd think of that would be... Yeah, yeah. Or, or, yeah. yeah so a big one is um, there's a condition called ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament, which is a mouthful. Um, we shorten it to OPLL. <laughs> Thank you. Which is, yeah, you know, we're simple people, so... Um, but uh, look, that OPLL is uh, far more common in, in patients from an Asian background. Okay. Um, mm. About 5% of the population has it. Um, yeah, it was uh, first reported in the Japanese population and, and there they've got about 8% of the population has OPLL. Oh. Um, and what tends to, tends to happen is they get progressive uh, calcification and ossification of the ligament that runs behind the vertebral body. Um, now, what that produces is progressive thickening and, and rigidity in the neck, um, and then that causes a, a degenerative cascade. So you get progressive narrowing of the, of the cervical spine. Um, and because you don't have that usual mobility, um, minimal trauma can cause fractures. Um, and when you've got a stiff, narrowed canal and then you have a fracture, then you can um, very easily compress your cord. Okay. Um, are there any other conditions that you see more commonly? Um, than others? Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are some other conditions that do predispose to um, uh, to cord injuries and, and those are more related to pathological fractures or, um, you know, if you've got a history of malignancy, um, but also if you've got uh, other inflammatory conditions like ankylosing spondylitis okay. or diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis or DISH, um, both of which lead to... Uh, long segment fusion in your cervicothoracic spine um, and basically spinal rigidity. So older patients with these conditions can have a a low energy uh, traumatic incident and get a devastating fracture with a cord injury. Um, When we do have a patient comes in, how do you assess them? You mentioned going through your sort of 
um, segmental approach to a patient with a spinal cord injury. What else do you do as a clinician from your experience? Well, I, I think um, yeah, any traumatic presentation needs to be managed by the uh, uh, Advanced Trauma Life Support uh, Foundation, which uh, you know all, all surgical trainees will have done at some point in their training, and I think a lot of emergency physicians uh, do it as well. Um, it's you know, it's a very well trodden path: um, airway, breathing, circulation, with a mobilisation of the C spine uh, at, at the point of the airway. Um, I, I think that's imperative, and you know, D does follow C in the alphabet. And and you know, as much as we'll try and tell people that it's more <laughs> important than everything else, it's um, you know, we do need to make sure they've got an airway and they're breathing first. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So follow your ALS algorithm, and yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. Um, so once you, your patient comes in, and more than likely to find out they've had a injury, sometimes we get a, a pickup from their clinical history that could make us can be concerned with the spinal cord injury. Yep. Are there any things that you, if you're getting a history that make you concerned that someone could have a spinal cord injury? Yeah, look, I, I think if you know, patients, if they're conscious and they don't, they don't have a, a um, an associated head injury, they they may well be able to tell you that mm. you know they were uh, dumped into a sandbar and they were plegic, um, or they were quadriplegic and couldn't move, and they were dragged out, and then you know gradually they got some improvement in the movement. Um, mm. Other other finds on. Findings on the the examination, you know, if they've got priapism, um, that's a concerning sign. Yep. Um, if uh, they've got an obvious step deformity uh, when you palpate the back, um, if uh, they don't have voluntary anal tone uh, or deep anal pressure, um, uh, voluntary anal contraction, sorry, um, all of these are, are factors that make you more concerned that there there might be a serious spinal cord injury. Okay. Let's pretend we've got a patient, they've gone through the ED, let's just say 21-year-old dumped in the surf, um, you know, unable to move the lower legs, let's just say. Um, they bing him through the scanner, uh, the donut of truth. Um, or if they've got a, you know, more than likely CT first. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you get a call as a reg saying that you've got, you know, this 21-year-old in the ED. Yep. Um, what are some things that you're going to sort of start to think about? Oh, look, I, I think, you know, uh, in addition to making sure the, the ABCs are all sorted, yep. they're immobilised, uh, you, you want to um, examine the patient yourself. Yep. I mean, uh, I think we all learn very early, uh, trust no one. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, we've all been called to ED about patients that um, you know, have got a devastating injury and when you turn up they're actually you know, not so bad. Okay. Um, but by the same token, uh, you, know, you should be worried if somebody's yep. calling you and, say, and telling you that somebody's got a, you know, they're plegic. Um, I think the other things to be mindful of are um, if you do have somebody that's got a cervical cord injury, you need to get uh, them to a, uh, an area where they can be monitored very closely because yeah. um, there's a, a significant risk of them deteriorating from a respiratory uh, perspective over the next 24 to 48 hours. Um, additionally, if you've got somebody that's got a, a serious cord injury, whether it's complete or incomplete, um, particularly if it's above uh, T6, then there's a risk of uh, developing neurogenic shock. Um, so, you know, that's that's a, a concern and, and that is something that really plays into the, the management and the prevention of the secondary cord injury uh, that I was referring to earlier where we want to make sure that they're their blood pressure is is elevated um, so that they're perfusing their, their cord appropriately. Um, uh, beyond that, I think it's really uh, a matter of making sure that they don't have any other associated injuries. So, you know, we, we care about the brain and we care yeah. about the spine, but patients hurt other things as well. Um, and from an operative standpoint, if we're going to take somebody to theatre and we think that we need to position them prone for several hours, 
Um, we want to make sure that they don't have uh, a flail segment or you know, multiple rib fractures, they don't have a pneumothorax, they don't have anything that's going to make things more difficult for the anaesthetist. Yep. So uh, you know, we, we do need to take a, a bit more of a holistic approach and, and really quantify uh, the severity of the injuries. Yep. Is that all radiologically? I mean, you examine, but does a lot of that uh, data come from the radi- like being radiologically scanned and seeing that level, or does it come from that real clinical exam, or is it a combination of both? Oh, look, it's. Uh, I'll be honest. You know, most of the time it's radiological. Cool. Yeah. You know, somebody comes in with a high high energy trauma, they get a CT pan scan, yep. Yep. Um, which is entirely appropriate. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, that's just interesting. Now we'll talk about the management. So you've got we've talked about this sort of patient that you're sitting in the ED, um, running through. Run me through how you would manage it, or even detect what we meant to do as clinicians yeah. to managing someone with a spinal cord injury. Yeah, so look, there's a there's a couple of parts to this. I think the the first is uh, the medical management yep. and optimizing patients so that uh, we can prevent the secondary injury. Um, I mean, there's. You know, we all learn as we go through training that patients need to be in an intensive care unit or an HDU, they need to have an art line and they need to have their mean arterial pressure driven above 85 for three days. And you know, a lot of the time that's just done out of convention, but uh, there's a, a good paper in 2015 by a guy called Hori Luck who uh, works with this uh, very, very well-renowned and uh, heavily published surgeon called Failings in Canada um, which examined the, the main arterial blood pressure tar- uh, parameters for uh, various patients with various levels of spinal cord injury over about a thousand days, um, and they found that there was a very clear association with um, improved outcomes uh, when the main arterial pressure was over eighty-five. Eighty-five patients that had uh, maps less than that—that um, that was a, a better indicator of poor outcome. Wow. So. And, and beyond the 72-hour mark, uh, everything seemed to plateau. So yeah. prior to that paper coming out in 2015, the, the guidelines were that patients needed to be in ICU for seven days. Um, okay. So that's been relaxed somewhat. Yep. But, um, you know, it is, it is all evidence-based. So, you know, sometimes we, we sound like we're being unreasonable in ED asking for these patients to go up even if they're maintaining their blood pressure by themselves, but there is a reason for it. Okay. Um, beyond that, I, I guess... If you've got somebody that has a cord injury and they have ongoing spinal cord compression uh, on their radiology, then the the next priority really, provided that everything else has been stabilised, is timely decompression. Um, there, there's been quite a lot of work looking at exactly what that means, um, how soon we need to get them to theatre. Um, and I, I guess the best evidence that we have suggests that within the first 24 hours has the best uh best benefit in terms of uh, improvement in motor scores, improvement in the Asia grade, so yep. from the A to E that we were talking about before. Um, and there's, you know, there have been a lot of papers published around that and guidelines, uh, again, published by this fellow Failings in 2017, uh, supported that quite, quite strongly. Um, there's been some more recent work uh, by a, a fellow called Arabi, that was looking at ultra early surgery within the first 12 hours. Oh. Um, and you know, that, that was uh, important because in large tertiary referral centres, you know, I, I mean, I worked in John Hunter a few years ago and a lot of our patients come from six, seven hours away. Say, yeah. And you know, if you've got a patient that comes off their, um, their quad bike on a property, they're three hours from the nearest hospital, there's a two hour delay getting a CT and then they come down to John Hunter, you're very rarely gonna get them to theatre within 12 hours. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, there were no differences in outcomes uh, 
between 12 and 24 hours. Okay. So, you know, that's uh, – I think that gives us a more uh, meaningful window to work with. But by the same token, if, we, if we're going to be advocating for our patients, we need to get everything in, in line to get them to theatre quickly. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about blood pressure control. Just quickly, if we can step back one step. Yeah. Uh, 85. So you're thinking more than likely a cent, some sort of central line access and some sort of inotropic medication. Is there any inotropes like NORAD? Adren- like, is there any type of inotrope that's – you guys have used more no i look it's uh, i tend to leave that up to the intensives yeah yeah Just it's um i mean i mean really the extent of my uh, imposition on their management is um is yeah, an arterial line and making sure that they're somewhere where they can act on uh cool. you know a dip in the blood pressure yeah. um but yeah um, cool. Just wanted to make sure that sort of, yeah. Um, blood pressure control, is there anything in relation to... No, I would imagine depending on the injury positioning for the patient, would they need to be in a certain position? I'm imagining there's having some sort of collar put in situ, a filly or some sort of Miami J or something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yep. So, um, I mean, the, the moment that somebody comes through your, your emergency doors, uh, often even when the ambulance, uh, you know, the paramedics have seen them, they put them in a collar. Um, and they should stay with strict say, spinal mobilisation and strict uh, spinal immobilisation until they've been pan scanned. Yep. Um, and if you've got somebody that's got distracting injuries or they're not accessible, you should keep them immobilised okay. uh, until they are accessible. Cool. Um, now, in terms of other other medication or other treatment options, sorry, for patients with the spinal cord, you've mentioned blood pressure control. Um, you mentioned early OT. Is there anything else that we'd be giving to our patients who could have a spinal cord injury in the ED? Um, so there's there's an, uh, a trial ongoing at the moment for a medication called Riliazole, um, okay. which uh, they've recruited. It's a, a prospective uh, multi um, multi institutional study uh, across uh, I think Canada, Australia, and a few other countries. Um, the Prince of Wales has been recruited. John Hunter has North Shore and a few other a few other countries in a, uh, sorry a few other centres in Australia. Um, and that's, that's shown really promising results in 90 days with improvement in motor scores. Um, that is approved okay. uh, for uh, early spinal cord injury, um, but the, the, you know, the long-term results of that trial still haven't been published. Okay. Um, so I guess that's something to watch out yeah. for in the future. Is it a one-off dose or is it a, a constant infusion? I would have to look that well, up. I'm, I, yeah. I've never heard of it, to yeah. be honest with you. So. Yeah, I've actually never given it because yeah, it's, okay. um, yeah, a lot, a lot of the time. I think it needs to be given within the first eight hours. Okay, wow. Um, and I think a lot of the time we miss that window. Yeah, okay. But yeah. Um, do we give any anything else, any other medications? I'm assuming we might give pain relief for someone who's in pain or yeah, yeah look, associated yeah. fractures. and. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think... Um, the question around whether to give steroids is, is yeah. raised quite commonly, nice. um, and, and it is it's still contentious. It is, um, yeah. So there were three three trials in the uh, late eighty late 80s, early nineties, the NASCAS trials, um, and they were looking at methylpred um, in various doses and various regimes, um, and basically showed that there was no difference in outcomes uh, with regard to motor score or um, or the Asia. Uh, the Asia outcomes, but there was an increased risk of complications with infection, uh, pneumonia, sepsis, death. Um, the reason there were three trials when uh, none of them have shown, when the first one didn't show that there was an improvement, was uh, that you know, the second NASCAS trial wanted to look at a 24-hour uh, infusion and compare it with naloxone versus placebo. There was no difference on that, but then on a post hoc analysis um, at six months, they showed that maybe there was a trend towards improved outcomes. So then they generated the third trial, which again didn't show anything. Um, I guess the reason it's contentious is uh, the third trial 
showed that if you can start uh, a methyl pred infusion within the first eight hours, then there's a very mild uh, improvement in motor in motor scores. But again, you run uh, you run the risk of you know, worsened outcomes with pneumonias, sepsis, wound infections. So you need to balance that very carefully. Yeah, okay. Um, and you mentioned sort of secondary secondary cord injury that could cause or problems that we could have. You've sort of alluded to a few of those. Yeah. Um, and it sort of said that obviously if you you know delay surgery, you delay things, don't control their blood pressure. That's bad. Mm. Uh, is there anything else that we could potentially do that's bad for our patients that have spinal cord injuries? Uh, yeah, so pr- prolonged periods of hypotension, uh, prolonged periods of hypoxia, okay. um, and I mean simple things like don't give don't give patients with epidural hematomas uh, chemical VT prophylaxis. Yeah. Don't make the bleeding worse. Um, but also, you know, if you've got somebody that uh, you either suspect has an unstable fracture or you've uh, confirmed that they do, then you want to make sure that they are strictly immobilised. Um, any any slight movement in somebody that's still got uh, tight canal stenosis could potentially you know, transform them from an incomplete injury into a complete. Yeah, okay. It's really important, eh, just that even... Like, like a few things you've raised, but like keeping them still, mm. but also, you know, doing that assessment really well and getting them, yeah. getting that management early, not waiting until... Because sometimes we can wait for scan results for a while. Oh yeah. To get imaged, and you know, especially even that night time period, you can be waiting for a scan to be reported. And yeah, yeah. Um, you sometimes need to, yeah. I mean, this is a situation where we're happy to be woken up. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. just checking. You know, yeah. There, there are lots of situations where we don't like it, but no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah definitely spinal cord injury. You like a phone call. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, and if you do get that phone call, have you've like in your cl- like personal experience, have you been asleep, got a phone call? Hey, got a spinal cord injury. Um, what? What you, you get up, get a coffee? Are you just straight in the car, bang, I'm going to drive yeah. straight there? Yeah, look, I, I think even if you've got somebody that doesn't have a scan yep. um, and you've got a convincing history and you've got mm. somebody with a you know, with a deficit on examination, they need yep. to be seen. Cool. So, you know, come in and sort it out yourself. Yep. Um, now, in terms of the spinal cord, where in your experience have you seen most spinal cord injuries? Do you see them towards the lower spine or towards the C, C1, C7? No, look, I'd have to say uh, predominance of cervical injuries. Yeah, okay. um, and certainly we see, probably see more central cord syndromes than, uh, than other incomplete injuries or complete injuries. Um, but you know, I think certainly the, um, the cervical spine is the most common. Um, you're going to run us through a case. Yeah, yeah. Look, yeah. So, um, um, is there anything else you want to add in, in relation to spinal cord? I'm, I'm assuming most patients, if we obviously you mentioned about priorism, but I'm assuming sometimes a catheter yeah. for urinary monitoring and yeah. to looking at kidney function and those sort of things. Um, if they're anticoagulated, you mentioned that before. Or, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you would, before you touch these patients surgically, you need to make sure that you're not going to make things worse. Yeah. So, you know, if you've got somebody that's on. Uh, something that's reversible then talk to hematology and give the reversal agent or give platelets or AFFP or prothrombin X um, but you need to make sure that you've had that consultation with the, the appropriate team. Cool. Are trauma patients harder to manage as opposed to singular you know cord injuries in terms of like like you said before just the fact that they're complex you're running them through a pan scan you're looking at CT chest CT abdos you know you could have. I, I think they have the potential to I think I think every patient has I mean, if, if we're just talking about central cord mm. syndrome, they tend to occur in older patients who tend to be more com- uh, comorbid yep. and therefore they're more complicated from an anaesthetic perspective. Yep. Um, but young trauma patients, certainly, you know, yep. if they've got um, uh, hemodynamic instability, uh, you know, if they've lost a lot of blood and they flip into DIC, then that's you know, yep. that poses lots of problems as well. Um, 
yeah, so you know, unique situations. Yeah. Do we see bradycardia in spinal cord injury, or have you seen bradycardia? Patients yeah. become bradycardic. Yeah, yeah. Why does that occur? Why do we see that difference when we talked about sort of um, neurogenic shock? Yeah. Why do we sort of see with that shock? Uh, so you, you get a loss of sympathetic tone below the level. Um, so you know, they get hypotensive, they get bradycardic. Um, so that's yeah, that's a bad sign. Um, and that's something that you need to be very mindful of. Um, and that's an early point where uh, you need to pop in an art line, drive the blood pressure so that you're really avoiding any secondary injury to that cord. The other concern if you see that picture is that those patients are at high, higher risk of cardiac arrhythmias. So you want to make sure that they're in a monitored bed and a monitored environment. Yep. And keeping your electrolytes pretty good. Exactly. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes not always. Now yeah. you're going to run us through a case uh de-identified case run us through a case uh and we'll chat through it yeah so look uh this is this is a complicated one i was, was on call uh a little while ago got called at uh, midnight or something about a patient who had just had a ct uh for another reason he, he presented with shortness of breath um he's got a background of lung cancer with a, uh, a right main bronchus stent um, and he'd come in with uh, shortness of breath. There was a question whether he might have had a, a PE, um, whether he had progression of his disease or whether he might have had a um, uh, pleural effusion. And uh, following that CT, he'd become acutely paraplegic and stopped moving his legs. And I got a call from the, the night med reg to say, look, you know, this situation, uh, he's, uh, his CT shows that he's got this enormous pleural empyema um, and he's got some gas within his thoracic spinal canal. Um, and the concern was whether he had an epidural abscess um, that had caused cord compression and that's why he was plegic or whether it was something else. Uh, the complicating, you know, I came in and saw the patient yeah. and he had no motor function below the waist. Um, he had intact proprioception um, and fine touch, but his uh, pinprick and temperature was impaired. So, you know, on, on examination, that is consistent with something that we call an anterior cord syndrome. Um, so the the posterior columns or the dorsal columns are your proprioception and fine touch. Um, so if we see that pattern, we have to worry that there's uh, cord ischemia, so a problem with the anterior spinal artery. Obviously, in this situation, it was contentious because he's got gas in his canal um, and this big uh, pleural collection um, and whether or not this was something that needed to be surgically drained. Um, the complicating issue was that with this, uh, this bronchial stent, he couldn't have an MRI, so we actually couldn't differentiate um, this on exam. Um, so, you know, there were lots of conversations between cardiothoracics at St George, uh, the anaesthetist, uh, the consultant that I was working with, and, you know, we agreed that this was most likely an anterior spinal artery infarct and something that surgery wouldn't improve. Um, but regardless, you know, his comorbid state with this enormous uh, pleural effusion and um, or the empyema um, meant that his, his perioperative mortality would have been well over 50%. So we, we elected not to take him to theatre. Okay. But I think from a, you know, a court injury perspective and, and like I was talking about earlier, piecing together where you think the, the injury has occurred based on the, the pattern of the examination findings, you know, there was, this was a good case in point. Um, obviously, you no. Know, not a not an ideal circumstance for this for this fella, but um, yeah, you know that was an, an unusual case. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like just I'm just sort of imagining that sort of picture in terms of being in hospital and suddenly you're 
yeah. paraplegic, then suddenly, uh, you know, you guys are running through in your head differentials of what could be wrong with this patient. Mm. Like, has anything occurred? Like, what's going on? Yeah. And then, you know, you've kind of been stuck with the imaging process could make it a bit hard. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, and then being ultimately a bit helpless because you know that you can't, you know, you can't help this guy. Okay. Um, and, um, yeah. Mm, that's hard. There you go. How do you, um, with just, I guess, yourself doing neurosurgery, what, what you said the brain interests you. Um, is there anything that, you know, when you're in your moment and you're able to be in either, is it in theatre or is it with the patient when you're examining or when do you feel you're most in your zone as a, as a neurosurgical doctor? Oh, look, I think in the theatre. Yeah, okay. um, you know, it, uh, time stands still. Okay. You just, um, you know, it, there's, when, when we're not in theatre, there are a thousand competing priorities. There's, you know, patients who need to be seen on the ward, clinic patients who need to be reviewed, patients in ED, the phone doesn't stop ringing, you've got paperwork that's piling up, you've got clinic letters to sign off. Yeah. But when you're in theatre, you know, you just got that problem in front of you. Okay. Um, and, you know, you just take your time, you know the process, you just work through it and everything else stands still. It's, yeah, it's nice. Any music or are you going... Always music. What are you playing? Oh, bit of a bit of anything. Anything yeah. you like the most? Uh, bit of Tropical House. Oh, there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. much cool. to the dismay of my wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love. I've, I've sat and listened to. I've listened to Metallica. I've listened to yeah, Rufus. Yeah. I've like just Ru- Rufus people. is not bad. Yeah. I've seen people with all different types of um music, but I love to sort of yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and going forward, what would be the dream in terms of neurosurge? Like being obviously a neurosurgical boss. Yeah, seeing your own patients, and yeah. Oh, look, I'd, I'd love to have a, a mixed cranial and spinal practice, but. Uh, you know the the plans over the next couple of years. Hopefully, head to Canada for twelve months, do a um a fellowship over in Vancouver and um a spine fellowship, and then um come back and set up set up shop here. Awesome. Yeah. Um, resources for anyone out there that wants to learn about spinal cord injury, where would you recommend looking? And we're going to put some show notes in the podcast for people to read. Um, look, I, th- I think the American Spinal Injury Association is fantastic. Um, so they've got a course which. I, th- I think is free. Um, if not, then it's a nominal amount um, that is very, very detailed and shows you, you know, exactly how to examine these patients and why and Sweet. how to differentiate um, you know, an A from a B from a C from a D. Um, I think that's really helpful. And uh, yeah, YouTube's a fantastic resource for, for most things. Yeah, cool. um, but, yeah, look, the Asia, Asia one is probably the primary. Cool. And I might put in those studies that you mentioned. Yeah down the bottom so people have a read yeah for sure um any other advice you want to give anyone that's listening about assessing patients that you've learned in medicine from your time like you've done some time you've seen some patients you've examined some patients you've operated on some patients yeah is there any sort of take-home points that you sort of feel like oh i definitely feel like this is something that i would like other people to know uh look i i think trust your examination and be thorough um, you know, don't don't skip things because you're busy. If you've got somebody that you're worried has has a spinal cord injury, um, then you know the the in-ski exam does take time, but it is important. Um, and escalate escalate early. You know, if if that's something you're worried about, then talk to the neurosurgery, reg, talk to the trauma reg, talk to cardiothoracics, whoever you need involved. You know, load the boat, get other people involved, because um, at the end of the day, we're all there trying to help the patient. So, you know, we um you want to have the most appropriate people looking after each organ system. Dude, I love it. Yeah. Um, dude, I know you're busy. Um, thank you for your time being able to sit here. I know you've got a million things to read, to learn um, for exams, but we wish you luck with uh, with all of your exams. And um, yeah, just thanks for coming on. Thanks, mate. Good yeah. on you. Cheers. And that's a wrap to the episode, guys. Um, I really enjoyed chatting to Simon about spinal cord injury. Um, the spinal cord and the brain are such complex things. 
some really big points I took out of it um, was when Simon was saying trust nobody and I think what he meant was make sure you examine the patient yourself make sure that you do your own clinical assessment of the patient I also loved how he said in the same token um, load the boat so make sure that you actually get other people on board the patient's journey especially if they're complex especially if they need other specialty teams involved that you're getting them in, on board for me personally I just imagine uh, the brain like the power box on the side of your house you know if you have damage to that brain that power box can affect everything and likewise the spinal cords like all the wiring to your house uh, if those wires are interrupted trauma uh, breaks or kinks fractures uh, then you're going to have issues related to the function of those lights, for instance. Um, that's just how I imagined it. Um, you know, there's 31 um, different spinal uh, nerves. Uh, there's a the spinal cord's amazing in what it does. I guess as clinicians, you know, we see a lot of uh, C-spine injuries. Um, so it just reminds us to be mindful of our management. I guess some cool things that Simon raised were in relation to our patient's blood pressure. Uh, ensuring that our patient uh, has a, an adequate blood pressure, also that our patient's in a monitored area uh, for safety of the patient, um, which is really important, uh, and also even some of the medications that he raised that I hadn't heard of. Um, yeah, like we wish him luck for his um, exams and his fellowship stuff, uh, and I hope you really enjoyed the episode. We've got more episodes coming up soon. Uh, you can follow me, edgm underscore podcast. Uh, send me a message if you liked the episode. Uh, I hope you like it, and I hope you have a great week. Bye. The EDGM podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which this recording is occurring today and pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging. Hey, frothers, that's another wrap to the EDGM podcast. Once again, you can follow me on Instagram, EDGM underscore podcast. You can also follow the podcast on all your streaming services. Make sure you hit the like button, share it with your friends. Thank you so much for everyone who listens to this podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you. You. You.